I love uh, hearing people get up and give their testimony. Some people do it with a song behind them. I'm thankful for that. You know, we are, uh, we're in a special time, aren't we? I think we're in a special time. We all have a little history lesson today. Not everybody at once. You do? Let's have a history lesson today. Some of y'all, I'm going to share some some important things that have happened in our history, and you're going to remember these things. Some of y'all are going to be, huh, how about that? Found these things fascinating. January 15th, 1967. Anybody know what happened on January 15th, 1967? In the life of our church. Here, I just narrowed it down from like whole world history to just us. So I helped you out a little bit. January 15th, 1967, the first worship service and Sunday school was organized at Westmead Baptist Church. How about that? October 6th, 1968. Any guesses? Do what? Constituted into a church. Westmead officially constituted into a church. Very good. You get one point. You're leading. You're in front of like all these people. That's impressive. October 6, 1968. October 4, 1970. I'm telling you, as we go down this list, you're going to see October is kind of a favorite month around here. October 4, 1970. Any guesses? The church, Westmead Church, occupied what is now the gym as the worship center on October 4, 1970. See, you didn't know that coming in here today, did you? Yes? No? Okay. All right. Think about it. June 1970. And this is kind of this is kind of relevant because what we're on the cusp of. In June of 1970, Westmead held their first vacation Bible school. How about that? June 19, and we got VBS coming up like it's right around the corner. I hope you're signed up and ready to serve that week. It's going to be a great week. Easter Sunday, 1980. Easter Sunday, 1980. Any guesses? No, it didn't call Brother Scotty Hogan. Not yet. That was about 20 years later. But it was a good guess. It was Easter Sunday. So Easter Sunday of 1980, the first worship service was held across the street in what is now the refuge. So this is a pretty cool thing. I found this one. As I was looking at the history, they just said 1986. They didn't say a date. But in 1986, do you know what was significant about 1986 in the church's history? This is like one of my favorite ones. We bought a computer. Yeah, people are excited about that. It was, it was in the history, like in 1986, Westmead bought its first computer and many programs to go with it. Uh, I was quite impressed by that. 1986. September 17th, 1989 was Dedication Sunday, which was the first service in this facility. Was anybody in here on September 17th, 1989? Yeah, y'all were here? Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. May 2005. I love this one. May 2005. Any bells? May 2005, Westmead Baptist Church, Central Park Baptist Church, and Parkview Baptist Church partnered together to build a house for a family in need through Habitat for Humanity. Like three churches put together $15,000 each and built a home for a needy family to live in. Is that not amazing? That God would do that through, man, that is, man, that is encouraging. May 21st, 2006, the King's Place opened and began ministering to families and children. Isn't this a rich, like this is fun to me. 
I mean, I'm a history minor, so I'm naturally a nerd when it comes to stuff. But like, this is great stuff. And it's amazing when we look back at this and be like, man, you know what? I remember so-and-so was on the committee and I remember this and I remember... That's great. But can we just stop for a minute and look back and say, what has God done in the history of Westmead? Isn't that amazing? It is so good to look back and see God at work in the history of Westmead. And we are here today because of these things that have happened, because of God's faithfulness and these things. We're, we're sitting here today. Isn't that awesome? This is wonderful. I'm trying to be encouraging to you. This is good. It's good stuff. Okay, let's move on. Let's just, let's just dive in. I just had to have a history lesson. So I heard a story one time, and if you've heard this story, don't stop me. But uh, I heard a story one time about a foreman who was responsible for a highway. And uh, he, they had paved the highway, but now they had to put the stripes on the highway. So this foreman went out and was trying to find somebody who would be willing to paint stripes on a highway. And he was finding some guys that were doing some pretty decent jobs. And then he found this one guy that said, sir, I just want to work. Just give me an opportunity. So he said, all right, be at my place at 6 o'clock in the morning. So the guy showed up at 6 in the morning. And he said, here's what we need to do. We need to do two stripes down the side and two stripes down the middle. And the first day of work, this guy striped a whole mile of the highway all by himself. The foreman was blown away. Wow, one guy all by himself did a whole mile. And he said, sir, did I do good? He said, you did great. I want you to come back tomorrow. He said, okay, sure, sir, I'll be back. So he came back the next day, and he's like, man, this is my guy right here. This is the hardest working dude out of all of them. So the next day, he said, all right, I want you to start here, and I want you to go. But on that day, he only striped half a mile. The foreman was like, you know what, that's, that's still pretty good. You know, it's, it's good comparatively speaking, but uh wasn't as good as a mile. I did a mile yesterday. He just did a half a mile today. That's, that's not bad. You come back tomorrow. I want, to, I want you to keep working here. So the guy comes back on the third day. On the third day, he said, all right, here's where I want you to start. I want you to stripe. And on that day, the dude only striped 50 feet. And the foreman met with him at the end of the day. And he said, I just need to ask you a few questions. I don't understand what's going on here. And the first day you were here, you striped a whole mile of the road. But on the second day, you, you did that in half. You only did half a mile that you striped on the road, that you, you painted those stripes. He said, today you only did 50 feet. And I'm just curious, why, what's going on? What's the problem here? And the guy looked at me and said, well, sir, it's, it's harder to strike that much road when you're that much farther away from your bucket. <laughs> Makes sense. Don't move your bucket, you're not going anywhere. You know, it's easy to lose sight. It's easy to lose sight and it's easy to be efficient when you move further and further away from your bucket. You know what I mean? When you just keep branching out and going further and further away from your bucket, you kind of get away from being effective. You kind of get away from what it is you started to doing in the first place. And this morning, I want us to take a few minutes to look in Scripture to see a group of people that demonstrate this for us. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Numbers Numbers is towards the front of your Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Bible. So I invite you to turn to Numbers. We're actually going to be in Numbers 21. And I'm looking up on the screen and that says Numbers 24. That's, that's my fault. That's, that's not you, Dave. That's me. That's me. Dave's like, what? No, it's on me. I apologize. Numbers 21. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Hebrew people. Matthew McGregor, where are you? Matthew, another name for Hebrew people? Israelites. Thank you very much. We're going to be talking about the Hebrew people, the Israelites. And what we're looking at this morning, I want to kind of give you a background before we pick up in the story. 
I want you to see what we're looking at. We're looking at a group of people that got too far from their bucket. We're looking at a group of people that at this point in time, picking up in the story, they've already been brought out of Egypt, okay? They've already, they were in bondage and slavery to Egypt. They've already been brought out by Moses, by God, through Moses. Uh, and the Egyptians were pursuing them. And in where we're picking up, they've already been delivered from the Egyptians. Do y'all remember how they were delivered from the Egyptians? Remember, they came up on the sea and there's a problem because the Egyptians are bearing down on them in the back and there's a big sea in the front. But God parted the waters in such a way that they walked across on dry ground. And then when they got to the other side, God caused the waters to collapse around the Egyptian army and they were delivered. Uh, so we've seen kind of the journey of where they're at. And at this point in time, they are what we call wandering in the wilderness. That God took them to the promised land. It wasn't just to bring them out of bondage, but there was a plan in place to deliver them safely to the promised land. This is what we would call their salvation process. It was them bringing out, not like salvation in which they were justified and glorified to be able to go to heaven. We're talking about they were saved from slavery and being delivered into a promised land. So they're kind of in that journey. They came to the place where they sent spies ahead and 10 of the spies came back and said, dude, that's impossible. We can't do that. And two spies came back and said, like, dude, we've got God on our side. We're going to do this. But the people voted unanimously to listen to the 10 and not the two. So God was like, you know what? I can't, can't really do much with a generation that doesn't believe in me. So they wandered in the wilderness. So they're in the process of wandering where we pick up right here in Numbers chapter 21. We want us to start in verse 4. It says, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth. So this morning, I want us to take a few minutes to, to look forward to remember. Let's to look forward to remember, and that's kind of our three points this morning. So the first thing we see them doing is they were looking. We see them looking. The first thing is we pick up in this story, we see them looking. Now remember, remember, the big picture here was that God was bringing them out of captivity, out of bondage, and he was leading them to the promised land. That's the big picture, right? This is the goal. This is what they knew they were accomplishing because of what God was doing. But they started looking. And the first thing we notice in this text is they started looking at what they don't have. They started looking at what they don't have. Look at that in verse 5. There's no bread. There's no water. They started looking at what they don't have. Don't we get caught up in this a lot of times? Like, what do they call it? Keeping up with the Joneses? We start noticing what other people have and we start looking at what we don't have. These guys were doing, they weren't comparing themselves, but they were looking at what they don't have. And I can't imagine the level of frustration that Moses 
had when he was dealing with these people, much less God. Because if you look all throughout this text, if you just looked at numbers and looked at a few chapters before, you see that God had already provided from heaven a thing called manna. He provided manna for him. And manna was something that they could just take up off the ground and eat like kind of a cake or like a little uh, a wafer type thing. Or they could ground it up and cook with it. They could do a lot of different stuff with this manna from heaven that God provided free of charge. This is fantastic. But even then, when they had manna from heaven, they thought it was really good for a little while. But then they got tired of that and said, man, all we got is this manna. We want meat. All right. So like I start identifying with the Israelites at this point in time. We want meat. And they started complaining about manna wasn't enough. So they wanted meat. And we look back in Numbers chapter 11. If you switch back about 10 chapters, you see that God provided quail. God provided quail for them to eat. And your first thought might be like, yeah, but a quail is a small bird. There's not really much that you can eat off of it. If you read the text in Matthew, I mean, excuse me, in Numbers chapter 11, you'll see that God provided three feet of quail. In other words, God brought all these birds, all these quail in from the sea area and brought them. And it said when the, the quail were there for them, they measured in three feet off the ground. They were like literally wading through quail, plenty to eat. So they did manna. They complained about that, that it wasn't enough. That they wanted meat. So God provided meat. And here they are. What are they starting to shout? They have meat. They have manna. There is no bread. Really, guys? There's no bread? There's no water. If you literally look back one chapter before this, you see that God provided water. They were complaining about being thirsty. So Moses, when God said, hey, you know what, Moses? Go speak to this rock and out of it I will bring water. Moses was frustrated. He disobeyed the Lord. He struck the rock twice. Water flowed out, cost him his ticket into the promised land, but they were given water. And here we are in chapter 21. They're just sitting there whining. We don't have bread. We don't have water. And when you go back to the manna that God had provided, go back to the quail that he had provided, what was their response? Look at the last sentence in verse 5. And we detest this miserable food. I want to take just a minute and talk to the parents in the room. Because you probably can't identify with anything like this. You probably have never prepared a meal and put it on the table in front of children, maybe even your children, at which point they came and sat down and looked at you and said, what's that? I don't want to eat that. I would love to know what your response was during that time. Uh, but for the sake of time and your integrity, I'm not going to ask you to actually give me your feedback of what you said to your children when they like, I'm not eating this. I don't want to eat this. I had a feeling it went along the lines of you going to eat what's put in front of you. I don't care what you wanted or what you like. You're going to eat it. I got a feeling that there was a response of frustration of, you know what, especially some of you ladies or men that, that spend your time cooking and slaving over a hot sl- stove. I just spent two hours preparing this meal for you, you're going to eat it. I, I got several of those speeches and a lot of different terminologies growing up that it didn't matter what I expected, I'm going to eat it. Why? Because I didn't pay for it, I didn't work for it, I didn't prepare it, and I didn't do anything but show up for it. Can you imagine if you have that level of frustration with these children whom you love, I can't imagine what God and Moses were dealing with with the Israelites when they said, we detest this miserable food. We detest this manna from heaven, all this quail that we asked for, by the way. We detest it. 
It's real funny because if you actually study this passage, if you actually study the account of the wandering through the wilderness, there's one point in time where God was like, you know what, Moses? I'm going to strike them all down. I'm going to go find another group of chosen people. I'm just going to wipe them all out. And Moses is like, hey, God, please don't do that. And Moses is probably like, because I'm one of them. You know, it was like, hey, God, let's, let's just temper your anger because, see, your reputation for everybody else is, man, these guys have the Lord God on their side. And if you strike them all down, then it kind of blasts your own reputation. God was like, okay, I just wanted to hear somebody speak up on their behalf. I'm good. Moses himself, Moses himself, you actually study numbers. Moses himself went to the Lord at one point in time and was like, Lord, why'd you do this to me? And he actually says, God, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll just kill me right now, we'll be good. I'll do whatever it takes. Just kill me. Just take me out of this scenario because these people are killing me. You can kind of see why when you look at this text. We detest this miserable tube. They were looking at what they don't have. So God said, okay, why don't you fix your eyes and let's look at what you do have. At this point in time is when Justin checks out of being an Israelite because God sends snakes. If there was ever a curse that was put on this earth, it was in the form of a, of a snake. Like these things, there's a reason when Jesus said, dude, it will crush the, the heel will crush the skull. Like snakes are evil. Like I know there are people in this room, you might have a pet snake. I pray for your soul. All right. There's something, there's something seriously wrong with that. So God was like, okay, you're going to look at what you don't have. Let me show you what you do have. And he sent snakes among them, poisonous snakes. And started biting the Israelites. So when you got people and snakes biting and death, I'm done. All right. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to go join another chosen people. I'm just out. You know, it scares me to death. But suddenly they're dealing with a snake problem. But here's what's great is anytime we're dealing with an affliction, God always provides a way out. But I want you to see their response to this snake problem. They came to Moses and they said in verse 7, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. Can I ask you a question? Why'd they ask Moses to pray? Why'd they ask Moses to talk to God? And and it's easy to look back and be like, well, the the monarchy, the establishment, the church. But there are several times throughout the, the course where we see the Israelites that they praised God and they gave praise to God and they gave worship to God and they gave sacrifice to God. They acknowledged God. But why are they going and asking Moses to pray on their behalf? Maybe because they understood, man, we've been grumbling and we've been complaining. We've been griping against God this whole time. But you haven't. Why don't you speak speak to us on his behalf? They knew the relationship had been fractured because of their disobedience. Because just a few breaths earlier, they were screaming at how they detest what God has given them. And now it's like, hey, will you, will you pray for us? We were wrong here. And we kind of, we're in a tight spot. And God still provided a way out. They were looking. They were looking at what they didn't have. And suddenly God made them look at what they did have. And they ran to the Lord. Looking forward. Forward. It's unique in this text that that the, the thing that God gave to them to give them a way out of their uh, miserable condition with snakes and being bitten by snakes was another snake. I remember a couple of years ago. I remember you preaching on this a couple of years ago. I love this passage. But when we look at this, when, when 
God told Moses what to do to provide a cure, to provide a, a, a way out for these beings bitten by snakes. It was to create a bronze snake and lift it up on a pole. So what happens was if I'm reaching into the cupboard to get something to eat and I get bit by a snake, I'm just going to die. I'll be honest with you. I'm going to pass out and the poison's going to course over my veins. I'm just going to be dead. But somebody else who's stronger and braver than I am, they're going to get bit by a snake. And all they have to do is walk out of their tent or wherever they are. Where is that statue? Because I need to find it now because I'm getting lightheaded. There it is. And just by casting their gaze upon this statue, this bronze snake that was lifted up, they were healed. And that's what God says. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. It says, so Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Your translation might say that it was lifted up on a pole. The word that was used here is the same word that is used that we see this text used again in John chapter 3. Because in John chapter 3, 14, Jesus, when he was talking uh, to, uh, to Nicodemus, when he came to him at night and was like, hey, tell me about this being born again. I don't get it. What is this talking about? And Jesus used this text in John 3, 14 and 15. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus used the term lifted up uh, as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness. So, that, so the son of man must be lifted up. It was the term used for exalted. And what happened here in this Old Testament passage is when the people, when, when the people fixed their gaze, it wasn't just let's glance over. Okay, I'm good. I'm healed. But they had to gaze upon this snake. They had to gaze upon the statue that was lifted up. Jesus referenced this later on because he pointed to the fact that, see, the people were saved by looking at that which was killing them. You were bitten by a poisonous snake. Therefore, look at this statue of a snake. And it doesn't, like, you look at it and it's like, why are they looking at something? Like, shouldn't it be like a picture of medicine or lifted up something high, some type of ointment, like something that core? No, it was look at a bronze snake. It was look, fix your gaze upon that which was killing you. God was using this text in Numbers when Jesus used it. He was pointing us, because now that we have the totality of Scripture, he's pointing us forward. That even in the Old Testament times, God was providing a way out for the people in the immediate term. But through that, he was showing us that he was going to provide a way out for us, for that which was killing us. He was pointing forward to the Messiah. But this wasn't going to be a Messiah that just showed up on the scene and gave us everything we wanted. He was pointing us forward to the Messiah that was going to show up on the scene to become the curse for us so that we might have a way out. It's referenced again over in Galatians. Paul writes about it in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who has hung on a pole. So when Moses was doing this, the people probably didn't get like, I wonder if he's foreshadowing about the Messiah that is to come. Oh, well, I'll fix my gaze on it and be healed. No, what he's pointing to and what Jesus was referencing later in the scripture is that he became that which was killing us, which was our problem, our debt that we accrued because of our sin. It says Jesus became a curse for us. When the people looked at the snake, it was, a, it was a symbol of what was killing them. When Jesus hung on a cross and the fullness of God was poured out upon him, it was because he took on the sin of all humanity. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree because he took on the sin of you. He took on your sin. He took on my sin. A sin is disobedience from God. Everything I've ever done in disobedience to God was placed on Jesus on the cross. 
He became the curse for me. And that is my salvation. That when we fix our eyes on that which is killing us to see how God provided a way out, then we too know the love that God has for us by providing a way out through his son Jesus. It's this beautiful imagery. It was looking, but it was looking forward to seeing what took place here. The humility. And the people, when they looked, when they fixed their gaze on this bronze snake, they were saved. They were, they were freed from their affliction of the poison. Jesus' Messiah that became what was killing us so that we might know grace. Looking forward. And the last thing I want us to look at, it was looking forward to remember. You know, if you, if you read this text, it would have made really good sense for us just to wrap up with verse 9. Verse 9 says, so Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. That's a really great place to kind of end this passage, isn't it? You know, it's kind of broken up. It might be even broken up in your text that the next text, it says the, the journey to Moab. It's already moving on to something else. But I want us to, I want to look at something that kind of draws a greater punctuation on this little narrative that we see here. Look in verse 10. The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth. You see that? The Israelites moved on. God just provided a way out. God just provided salvation for a people who were being disobedient. God just taught them a great lesson. And what do we see them do next? They moved on. They just moved on. I mean, we don't, we don't see them stopping and be like, after Moses provided the bronze snake and after God provided healing from their affliction of poison, the people worshiped. The people repented and turned back to God. It doesn't say the people gave sacrifice. The people got together and had a big party in recognition of what God has done. No, they moved on. They just moved on. As a matter of fact, if you look all throughout the book of Numbers and you follow the behavioral patterns of these Israelites, if you flip over to the book of Exodus 14, 16, and you follow the behavior of these Israelites, you see this over and over and over and over and over again. These people that God has done great, great things that they find themselves, well, why don't you bring us out here to die? Well, we were better off back in Egypt. At least we had something to eat out there. Well, we just, well, let's follow Moses. Let's march out here and God's going to kill us. This is a great idea. It's complaining, 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 complaining. And this is also the reason why they're wandering around in the wilderness because God said, I can't use these people. They have no faith. They don't believe. And I want you to stop and think about what we already talked about. These were the people who had spent generations in slavery and could not do anything to get themselves out of it. This was a people that God, through his servant Moses, did miraculous things through something as horrific as ten plagues that the ruler of the nation said, you know what, take them, get rid of them, you can leave. They were given their freedom, they were given salvation, and in doing so he changed his mind. These were the same people that walked on dry ground between two walls of water. And they had forgotten all of that because they didn't have enough bread and water. And when God provided everything they needed, and even God provided correction 
Granted, it was through snakes, but God taught them a lesson and then by providing a way out, reminded them of how he is steadily providing everything they need. They just moved on. That was their response. They just moved on to something else. This was a people that got too far from their bucket. This was a people that started out on a journey trusting God. And by the time we find them here, they're whining and complaining about what God has already done for them. And they got too far from their bucket. Church, the point I'm trying to point you to is to revisit where we started this year in the text of therefore. Because see, therefore happens that when we stop and acknowledge what God has already done and his faithfulness, the therefore happens is when we respond in obedience and watch what God does next. They weren't living a therefore. They had totally forgotten what God had done in all his faithfulness and sovereignty and love and grace that he had already poured out. They had forgotten that and they had no therefore. That what God was still calling them to do, they were still not doing in disobedience because they were so consumed with themselves. Believe it or not, this coming week, we transition into the month of May. Yeah, it's crazy. Four months down. We're a third away done with 2019. And I just want to ask you, what has been the answer to your therefore up to this point in time? What have you done that you got to experience the gracefulness and faithfulness of God in your life because you've trusted on what he has done for us already. I started out by sharing with you a history lesson that I said it's easy for us to look back and say, well, these were board members and these were people on the steering committee. and these are, But it wasn't about them. It's about the faithfulness of God in this church over the last 50 and a half years to see what God has done. That we need to stop and constantly remember the great things that God has done in this church. Because when we forget those things... When we forget how God's been faithful to us, when we forget how good God has done to get us to this point in time, then what in the world are we going to expect God to do next if we'd have forgotten what he's already done? This is a group of people that walked between two walls of water and had forgotten it because they were so focused on themselves. Looking forward to remember. I'm asking you this, this church. What is it that God has called or is calling you to do that we're ignoring because we hope it goes away. We don't think we can do it. It's going to cost too much. That's too hard. Did you not forget about that computer in 1986? Did you not forget about that group of people that answered God's call to said, I want to plant a church on that side of town and look at us today? You want to think back to a man that as of last week would have been 19 years serving as your pastor and say, man, God, Look at what God has done. Are we going to forget all of these things? Because may we not become the people that are forgotten and we're so consumed about ourselves. I also want to make sure you know this is a proactive statement I'm making. This is not, if you're a guest of ours, this is not a reaction because we're really struggling and we're disobeying the Lord. No, I'm saying we have to continually keep ourselves in check and remind ourselves of where we're headed. Because if not, we're going to be painting 50 feet of stripes because we've gotten too far away from our bucket. Remember, there's a therefore that we are seeking to answer because of what God has done in our lives. 
and what we expect and anticipate God to do next. So when was the last time you had a conversation that sounded something like, you know what, in my life, I have seen blank happen because of God's faithfulness, because of what he already did. You know, this is what's going on in our church. We see this and this and this happening because, and we're not really surprised by it because if you would have seen the last 19 years, if you could have seen the last 50 years, you'd see all throughout God's faithfulness. And man, we're just kind of expecting it. And man, it's incredible to see how God continues to be faithful. And we're trusting in that. We're leaning on that. As we look, what are we looking at? Are we looking at the things we don't have? Are we looking at the things that we think would make us whole, that we think would make us a little bit better, that we think would achieve the goals of the eyes of the people around us? Are we looking at the things we do have because we're only stopping and recognizing our problems? In our prayer lives, are our prayer lives just consumed with moving from one prayer request to the next one and never stopping to thank God for how he answered these prayer requests? Do we not stop and recognize that in God's faithfulness, that our response to that isn't just to move on, that our response to that is to maybe repent. Maybe our response to that is to worship. Maybe that response to that is to give and to serve because of what God has done in my life. I want to turn and that God can use me in somebody else's life. Let me ask you this. When, when, we, when he is exalted, when we look at Jesus, when we consider him today, what does he look like? See a snake on a pole? Is he the one that just hasn't given us that bread and water that we asked for already and we're just sitting around waiting on him? Or is he the one who's been faithful to bring to us and show us his faithfulness through the many, many miracles of the ways that he has shown up and been present in our lives throughout? Because how we look back and see what God has done will determine what we're about to do about it. Church, don't forget you're there for. Don't get too far away from your bucket. Open your eyes. Remember what God has done. And let's ask him to give us more. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the time we can spend in your word. I thank you for the privilege we have to be gathered together in this, in this room, in this place, on this campus. But God, most importantly, I'm thankful for the privilege we have to meet together because we are called the church because of what you have done. God, for those of us who are in Christ, we collectively claim that we are who we are because of who Jesus is. And Father, may we recognize that we're not called to just stop right there, but that's the beginning of what we do next casting our cares and burdens on you trusting in you and looking to you to do something great that we can't do on our own God this morning there may be somebody here that's that's just caught up in that looking phase that their life has become just noticing the things in our life that we don't have we compare ourselves to something we see on Facebook or we look at what our neighbors have pulled up in their driveway recently God may we recognize that all we need is found in you and may we trust in you to be our fulfillment God there might be somebody here who's kind of like the Israelites they didn't see the forward that you were pointing us to God they don't they may be struggling with the idea that their identity may or may not be founded in Christ because they don't have a relationship with Christ that God that 
We have a Savior who became like us, that had temptation and dealt with pain and dealt with sorrow and dealt with joys. And God, that we have a, a Savior who identifies with us, that we can connect with, that knows what we feel, that knows what we struggle with, that knows our hurts. But God, a Savior who was not tainted and corrupted by sin, but became sin for us on the cross that he would die on my place. And God, today, if anyone is struggling with that for their life, I'd meet them where they are and show them their need for you. And God, as we consider moving forward, may we never fail to remember how faithful you have been in our lives. God, if it is a marital situation that they're struggling, God, May they be reminded of how you've been faithful in their marriage. If it's a parenting situation that a parent is about to give up, they don't know what to do, will you remind them of what you have done to equip them as parents? God, will we remind, remember if it's a job, whatever it is, that we would remember how you've been faithful? Because God, if you've been faithful in the past, you'll be faithful to lead us through. So God, this morning, lead us to a place where we can trust you. If that means we trust you to, to partner up with Westmead to do ministry together, then, then I would love the privilege of talking with somebody about that. If somebody needs to come down and just spend time at the altar, grab a friend, say, let's go pray together over something, that they would do so. God, may we not be like Israelites and just move on, but may we stop and respond in obedience to your faithfulness. Be glorified in our response, Father. And may you be the answer to our therefores. We pray and lift you up this morning as we respond and as we stand. Father, we thank you. We love you. Amen. Will you stand, please? Thank you.